Hey everybody, welcome to the Eurasian Americans here on episode 84. I want to say thank you to everybody who's tuned in for the last few episodes where we talked heavily about voting and for campaigning because I feel like finally we are able to begin the process of healing and to make sure that we have a leader in the White House who does not encourage or condone violence against Asian Americans and injustices towards our fellow human beings. So thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for voting, for campaigning, for sharing the right messages with your families and friends so that we can move this country into the right direction. Today, I am so excited to share with you a conversation that I had a little while ago with my friend, Sarah Katow, who is a stand-up comic. She's a writer. She's a podcast host. And overall, she's just a really badass human being. Really enjoy getting to know her through this process. After you listen to the podcast, make sure you go check out all her comedy and all her work on our website at sierracatal.com. And the links are going to be in the show notes for you. Thanks again for tuning in. It's a great day to be alive. And here now is my conversation with Sierra. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Eurasian Americans. Whenever you're listening to this and from wherever you're listening to us today, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. We are in September and with two months to go in what could be the most important election of our lives and now six months into COVID, we still don't know how 2020 is going to end. And one thing that I particularly miss quite a bit about 2020 and the way that things have turned out is entertainment. Uh, whether it is a live sporting event or a concert or something that I really enjoy doing myself, going to see live comedy, that's something that has really just been put on the shelf. And, you know, it is not, I don't think, to be fair, on the top priority list of government officials on like, when are we going to open the comedy club? But it really has given people throughout the years, and now we've started to realize it even more that we miss it. It was a critical part of many people's day-to-day and just an escape from reality and to connect with people and to, you know, discuss even really important press and current events, which I think many comedians have masterfully done over the years. So really excited to host my friend on the show today, who is one of the funniest people and one of the rare, unfortunately rare, and hopefully not rare for much longer, Asian American women uh, who stand up on stages across the world and, and tell her jokes and really go against the stereotypical subservient, quiet Asian woman, because I don't think she really gives a crap when she's on stages telling jokes. So, so excited. And I hope you are too for this upcoming conversation. And with that, would love to welcome my friend Sierra Catal to the show. Hi, Sierra. Hi, thanks for having me. How is everything in 2020 for you? Oh, well, you know, stuff has happened. Uh, oh, yeah, it's it's been it's been interesting. Like what you're describing just now definitely resonates, not just as like a comedian and there's no more live shows, but also just as a fan. Like, I feel like I got a lot of my socializing from going to comedy <laughs> clubs and watching mics or like, you know, meeting other comedians. And that's kind of been halted for a bit. So, yeah, so I definitely feel that. But um, I'm lucky to be, you know, healthy and uh, I work from home a decent amount in other regards. So, like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I can't complain uh, 
and I know there's a lot of other things, <laughs> but of course, since comedy plays such a big role in my life, I, I yeah, think I, I think comedy <laughs> is for many people not an escape from reality, but a a certain way of interpretation of what's going on, and a way to uh, perform catharsis at times of just self-expression, and really is a primitive form of storytelling that I think you know we laugh and we enjoy, but you know, it is an art and it is a science and it's, you know, not everybody can do it. And so I, I think it's something that I personally miss. You know, I attended some Zoom comedy shows and hell, it just ain't the same. Um, <laughs> it's not. What? An action. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel that. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I was on the phone with our mutual friend, Walter Hong earlier. Shout out to uh, Walter, if you're listening. Oh, and we we're just discussing oh, that. Hilarious comedian. The future of comedy, live comedy is going to be so different because there was a science to packing all those people in a very tight space with sound that echoed off the walls because that's the only reason this thing worked, that the collection of laughters where you're so close that you lose a sense of your own personal space and the comedian on the stage like feeds off that energy and without that, you know, back and forth feedback, if you have 30% capacity, if you have an outdoor show, if you have, you know, these different <laughs> things that people are trying, it's just not going to be the same. Um, and so we're going to get to all that and we're going to, you know, learn about your journey and then how you became this writer, comedian, podcaster, inspiration for so many folks out there. Let's roll it a little bit back to uh, where all things started. Um, how did your family become Asian American? Who came here around when and how did that journey begin? Yeah, I, I love that question. It's it's funny because when you first mentioned, you know, we'll talk about how your family became Asian American. It's like, oh, it's like a, you know, an origin story. It sounds very like, you know, then the wizard came and cast In a spell beginning. and <laughs> we were blessed. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I uh, you know, I have a kind of, I, I feel I'm discovering more unique family history in the sense that like, you know, um, I'm half Japanese, half Chinese American and both uh, sides, fourth generation. So um, you know, I, so no, no really living memory in my family that's immigrant, um, which I know is a big part of the Asian American identity. So that's something that I've always like, you know, been a little bit like more, you know, learning more about just through friends and, and, um, folks in the community. Uh, but I, I came from, yeah, I came from the privilege of growing up with parents who also were born in Southern California and grandparents too. So, so yeah, so we kind of are this big, um, Southern California family on both sides kind of been here and uh, lots of cousins and people who are, who are kind of spread out in America and um, one who is living in Hong Kong now. And uh, but yeah, I mean, that's kind of been our story for a long time. And yeah, I think that's fascinating. We don't you know, you're, you're right. Like the immigrant storyline, at least for many Asian Americans, um, is the leading narrative or the most common one that I think we can think about. Um, if you look at specific countries, uh, like I came here when I was eight. So depending on what how you define first generation, I am, I am either a first or a 1.5 or a zero. Um, but that's still very new. Um, I've come to learn as I've done this show and have met very uh, a diverse array of awesome Asian American friends is that, you know, that's also obviously not as prevalent as I thought, because some folks are here as refugees mm -hmm. and some folks are here as adoptees. And and so, you know, in, in those cases, there wasn't a lot of personal choice in coming. 
and then you're just sort of put into the situation um, for the right reasons, right? To in both of those cases, like to to provide what one may consider a better opportunity of of sorts. But I think, you know, especially when it comes to Japanese American friends, like Japanese Americans have been here for a very long time, and it's but it's it's they've maintained their culture in a unique and and obviously a, a fusioned way whether it is the Japanese American community that's mm-hmm. very prevalent here in Southern California, or if you go to Hawaii, obviously it's very heavy Japanese American influence. But I think it's so cool that, you know, we, we talk about, and I think as, as a parent of, you know, young Korean American kids now, like we not worry, but we think about how is the culture or identity going to be different for them? Because at least I spent a few years in Korea, right? Like at least education was there. Um, so I'm very, you know, curious to learn about your identity growing up, like how much, you know, other than I guess, or I guess I'm not even going to make assumptions, like was, was food a part of it? Was language a part of it? How much did your parents try to instill <laughs> also with the context that it was bicultural in both the Asian senses? Um, how much of that influence was uh, present in your home? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think food is probably the most prevalent, I want to say. Um, definitely not language. Unfortunately, yeah, I don't even think my parents spoke either language. And then my grandparents, I, you know, I, I think they know a little bit, but uh, yeah, it wasn't even, it wasn't other than I think what they like, they had school growing up and such uh, like that. So it wasn't a ton. And then obviously didn't, you know, teach it to their kids necessarily. It probably wasn't, uh, yeah, it wasn't necessarily a thing that they thought to do at the time. Cause I think, you know, maybe that was a time when assimilation was kind of the thing. Right. So then, you know, they're like, all right, move on or whatever. Anyway. So, uh, so yeah, so that didn't, I, I don't think language as much, but I would say, you know, a lot of like what you're saying about Japanese Americans being here for a while and kind of having, um, a lot of culture here. I know that, you know, I grew up doing a lot in little Tokyo, <laughs> Uh, we would do our little chibi K mm-hmm. runs. I don't know if that's still a thing, but it was like a little, it was like a day where all these little <laughs> kids, I mean, it must've been very cute. I was a kid at the time, so I didn't really understand that other kids are cute, but you know, there's like a lot of little Japanese American kids running around whatever that street is. And then we would get like, you know, little, uh, Arare crackers or I don't know, my pronunciation is terrible clearly, but, uh, you know, we'd kind of stick around there. Um, I did the Japanese American basketball league out here, which is a really big, I think, JA cultural thing to do. Um, so I was really into basketball cool. as a kid. Unfortunately, I did not pursue that, even though I would have had a bright future at five one. Um, and yeah, I think overall, you know, in my, my mom's side is obviously Chinese American. I think even then, like we have such a big family that a lot of stuff we realized was in the family culturally. And maybe we thought that was Chinese American, but then it turns out, oh, that's just a word we made up. Like, that's just a word that apparently, you know, people would say, like, I think one that's really big in our family was um, just saying like, ish, or like, as like, oh, that's kind of dirty or gross or something. Like, I don't know. (laughs) And like, that's, That, you know, I think I thought as a kid, like, oh, well, that's not an English word, so it must be a Chinese or Cantonese word. And then it was just like, no, we just made it up some point. So it's just hilarious because I think, yeah, there was just a lot of, um, I think, lost in translation of several generations, uh, things that I kind of would attribute to maybe being Asian American. And then later I would find out like, oh, I don't know, you know, who knows at this point. Um, So, yeah, so I guess that's what happens after many generations (laughs) is uh, you get me just being like, oh, I, I thought that thing was... Okay, never mind. 
<laughs> but um, and, and you, but, but you, your your um, upbringing circumstance it is fascinating to me because it's multi or multitude of, of generations into the immigrant journey. Um, you also grew up in a part of town that maybe safe to say is a lot more diverse today than it was mm. when you you were growing up. Um, what sort of early influences did you have either through your parents or through the local community on what you wanted to be and what you could be? Sure. Um, yeah, so I guess I did grow up in a suburb that was probably primarily white and Korean American, I think at the time and probably, I don't know what it is now, but, um, but yeah. And more, I think more of you know, the it was same, primarily probably. white. Yeah. Yeah. It was primarily white, probably more white when I was there. And then, you know, increasingly is, um, hopefully diversifying, you know, who knows, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think, I think overall it was like, you know, so I felt at least like I had a lot of you know, I didn't feel like I was the only Asian American when I was going to high school, which is good. And I, I think, you know, it increasingly got diverse as I got older too. So that's something to note. So I think that was lucky and, and nice overall. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess like as far as influences, you know, I, I feel very lucky that I had um, my family and I had a lot of older cousins I could look up to for like, you know, in their, in, in most cases, it was like seeing what school was like, you know, moving on. I think my, I had an older sister who um, obviously was like a huge role model for me and she's five and a half years older. So considerable gap at, as a child. Right. And so I think it was always funny. She would describe that, like her, like she herself didn't know that like there was life after sixth grade, <laughs> just because it was like, she didn't have an older sister maybe to look at. And then I'm like, well, you know, I, I was lucky. I had a lot of older cousins I'd heard to look at as far as like, oh, and then you apply to college and then you, you know, you can think about what you want to do for a living and things like that. Um, and most of our friends and family too were Asian American, mm. you know, um, and I think that was pretty, and uh, also specifically, I think a couple family friends who I think my dad knew for a long time and that they all had families. Um, they're all Japanese American um, and you know, it's like, I think at the time I was just like, yeah, I guess everybody's Japanese American and been here for a while, you know, and then, <laughs> and then you're like, oh yeah, I guess that's, you know, of course you kind of gravitate towards people who are similar to you. And these are friends from, you know, my dad's college days even. So it's, it's just pretty funny to kind of go outside of that bubble. Right. But I, I do believe that I had a, a lot of luck with having a lot of people in my life who, you know, we were just us and it didn't feel, um, all too othered. You started performing at a relatively young age, what was the first comedy influence you remember, particularly in, in stand-up comedy? Yeah, of, of me performing. Like, what was your first time seeing it and then to think that you could do it yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay, what was my first? I think it's definitely, you know, around this being the first time, but I want to say Ellen DeGeneres had a special called um, here and now, and it was on HBO or one of those. And basically was just like in our special, but I think I had just never seen anything mm. like that before. And the fact that it was just jokes, but also it had a whole through line and she kind of circled back to the beginning and it was just really well done. And I was like, wow, you can just talk on stage and <laughs> you don't have to do anything else. You know, I, I think that was really exciting. And, um, kind of shortly after or around then I think I started to get more into like, you know, searching for clips on YouTube and there weren't as many as there are now, but for sure it was like, you know, Comedy Central would put out their half hour and 
Um, so I definitely, yeah, I definitely got into that a lot around the same time that I started because I think the, you know, sort of like, okay, great. I think everybody should, at least when they watch comedy, kind of feel like, hey, you know, I can do that because it's really just talking on stage. It's not like, you know, when you're seeing someone sing or somebody do some crazy instrument or something, I think there, there's a little bit of a le less of a barrier. Uh, it, it seems so, although as, as I'm sure you can attest now, it's not literally, here's a microphone, go into an arena full of people and we'll, you know, cut this fat check to you when you, you know, it's, sure. it's, it's creative, it's, <laughs> it's creative sessions, it's writing, it's refining, it's testing, it's audience feedback. And, you know, by the time, um, somebody speaks those words, there's been many, many eyes and then many, many rooms that, you know, the, the words have, have gone across. And particularly as now you sit as a writer, you certainly understand the other side of it, where I always thought it was funny too, because you'd watch, um, you know, late night TV and, you know, I, I grew up with Letterman and Leno and, and those guys and on, on the credits, they'd be like writers. And I was like, why? I thought these guys were funny. Why, you know, why do right. funny why people they... need people to write yeah, funny yeah. stuff for them? Um, it's, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good observation. Yeah, exactly. You're like, this guy's just right. got a great and, personality. And even, I don't understand. Even now, right? What like, he's saying. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, it sucks that, you know, Hassan got his show canceled by Netflix and, but even him, right? Like a naturally gifted orator oh, like yeah, has yeah. like writers on his staff and you're like, wait a minute, like that, you know, sure. but it's, it, it's, it's interesting to know that there's a team behind everybody, but it's also interesting to see that like, it's not, you know, as easy, you know, this is why people, even, you know, the A-list comedians that we think are just like naturally just gifted practice their craft and they pop into, you know, they used to like, you know, used to pop on any given night to a comedy show and they would practice their jokes. And then, so that's really, really fascinating. Um, when was the first time you perform in front of a, a live audience? Yeah, I think, so yeah, I did um, an open mic at a, a uh, comedy Burbank, club out yeah. here called Flappers Comedy Club in Burbank. Um, yeah, which is a hilarious one. Well, basically they, you know, they serve food. So I think they let people who are under 21 go in, even though they serve drinks. So anyway, it was, it was a loophole. No, it's a, it's totally illegal. It was fine. I was there. Um, and yeah, and my parents brought me, my sister was there. Um, and yeah, it was a family affair. They all came by to see me do three minutes at an open mic. I think actually my dad had taken me the week before to scope it out. <laughs> so this is the level at which my parents were very involved in my early comedy days. You know, they sat with me through all the, the <laughs> dirty dick jokes and, you know, sex jokes. Oops. Hit the table. Yeah. And everything that you never, ever want to experience alongside your parents. Don't worry. I did it for you. Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, very, and it, and it went fine. You know, and I think a lot of people, their first time, if anybody's thinking of starting stand up <laughs> in this, well, don't start now, but you know, uh, one day um, is that it, I think people's first time tends to go quite well. And my theory is, you know, you've probably been thinking about a lot of bits throughout, you know, your whole life up until then. So then you have good bits at that point and they're probably great. And then the, the hard time is maybe the few times after when you're like, okay, now I said everything I had. <laughs> time to write new stuff in the shorter amount of time than my whole life leading up to this point. So, so yeah, so it was a it was a good experience, and it obviously uh, kept me going back. Um, but it was a, a funny one because I was I guess 16, and you know, not not really. A normal I mean, you, you just shared with us that your parents and, and family together were very supportive. They they showed up and. 
obviously, you know, your dad put in a little bit more work and, and scoping it out to make sure that it was a, a safe environment for his daughter to go and perform. <laughs> How did they take it when oh, you sure. said, hey, yeah, I yeah. might, you know, I want to take this seriously enough to go to try it out? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, so at the time, I think it was probably closer to like, a, oh, I want to play basketball for the Japanese American. You know, it, was, it wasn't like a, a full career move or anything because you're so young. And so, so they were, yeah, I think they liked the idea. I think they knew. So I had done a lot of like student government as a kid, big nerd, all the fun things and gave a lot of speeches. So they knew I liked to do that kind of stuff. So I don't think they were necessarily mm. like, whoa, who's this coming out in the word work? Like they kind of maybe knew I liked to do that. Um, but I think, yeah, I think it was definitely like <laughs> a big ask of like, you got to drive me. I don't think I had my driver's license at the time. You got to drive me and you probably have to like make sure I don't get, you know, accidentally nabbed by people. Um, you know, that's that's always a possibility. So so anyway, yeah, I think uh, they were very supportive at that time. I think the bigger conversation might have been, you know, down the line of like, I want to do this as a career or go into entertainment. But I think by that time I was so, you know, I was already in school, in college, and they knew I would graduate and maybe felt a little bit more like, okay, well, at least have a backup plan, you know. Um, but, but yeah, at the time, I don't think it really it, – <laughs> It didn't, I don't think, hit them as differently as, say, me wanting to pick up another hobby for the resume, you know? <laughs> so let, let's talk about academics, because when, when people see you on stage or when people meet Sierra now as a writer and a podcaster and they stand stand up comedian, they don't expect to see on your resume Harvard, but you pursued it. I, I Conan O'Brien, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding. They right? don't see like, that. No, there, there's yeah, no I, yeah. lack right. of correlation, but perhaps <laughs> it's just, you know, art versus creativity. And not to, it's not a knock, but it's just extra impressive because it's in addition to the art of creativity that you pursued high level at the highest level academics. And I don't know if Harvard has a, a, a you know, a walk in the park major, but you got your degree in computer science, which again, it's sort of like, you know, uh, goes against, wait a minute. If I told you that there was a Chinese Japanese American woman who is a stand-up comic and writes for Disney and all these different things. And if I told you she went to Harvard, computer science probably wouldn't make the top, you know, list of things. And then, so why I'm fascinated to hear this story is because they seem to be even as things in your, in a person's mind or heart, competing things where, whereas one is extremely, it's engineering, right? So it's science, it's fact, it's equations, it's methodical and linear in a way. And then here you have comedy, which is one of the most expressive creative outlets where, sure, we just talked about how there are writers and there's a process, but part of it is just feel. It is both a, you know, it's nature and nurture. You know, you can't create in a laboratory a comedian. There's certain parts of our, you know, personality that just have to be comfortable with it. Tell us about the, the the process. You know, you you first performed comedy at sixteen in in you know near your hometown, but you still pursued academics in high school. You know, as, as you just joked, like not a backup plan, but you know your primary plan of going to a school where you could pursue academics. Did you study and want to go to college, knowing that you do comedy or wanting to do comedy? Like, what was that like? Right. 
Yeah, yeah. What was I thinking? Jesus. Uh, <laughs> what was I even doing? No, I think, yeah, it was definitely on my mind. Like I, you know, started in high school, of course, doing stand-up, thinking I love the, I, I love comedy. Um, I heard rumors you could write for television and comedy television, which is what you're, when you're just talking about the fact that like noticing that there's writers on, on a late night talk show or whatever, like that, of course, isn't really common knowledge. Like I think, I mean, now it probably is because like Twitter exists and there's mm. more of a mainstream understanding maybe of entertainment, but definitely I think a lot of that stuff isn't really known. And so I think it's kind of, it was a, obviously a privilege growing up in like Los Angeles area where there are legitimately people who you could live nearby maybe, or like entertainment's just even like a big enough industry where people are like, oh yeah, and writers exist. And the guy who holds the camera is a thing. And like, there's also a person who holds the lights, you know? So there's definitely that knowledge started to seep in a little bit. So I knew it was even a possibility, which I recognize isn't something that, yeah, that normally people might know or set up to go to school for or whatever. So, um, so anyway, but I, but I was a, yeah, I was very into computer science as well. Like I, I loved to code as a kid and I was really into Neopets, which then led for me to learn HTML and then I, you know, PHP and all these other like coding mm. languages that were sort of like all fueling this idea that I, I really liked Neopets. Um, no, it, it was also just like, yeah, okay, here's something else that I felt good at and I could kind of learn on my own. And it was um, a fun thing, a fun skill to build. And um, yeah, and so I, I think I definitely went into college knowing I'm a computer science kid, um, but it wouldn't hurt if I went to a school that was also in a city there that I could continue to do comedy mm. at night. Um, and so, you know, I think obviously Harvard is a dream school. And so like, I didn't even think I would go. So it's not like, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if oh, this Harvard, it's near Boston. I wonder if they have any comedy there. No, it was like, yeah, I mean, I definitely want to go there. That would be incredible. Um getting in was awesome. And then, you know, going, it's like, they, they actually do have a lot of comedy there. They have the lampoon, which I was involved in, which a lot of TV writers come out of. And they have, you know, uh, they had actually a stand-up club, huh. a stand-up comedy student club that I was like a part of, which was fun. And there was even like a little comedy club in Harvard square and like a lot of comedy in Boston, obviously. So I think it actually lent itself nicely to that, even though of course, primarily I was a student and, um, had to do class or whatever they call it. Uh, it was definitely, you know, a good combo, I think, surprisingly. That's fascinating. I mean, look, I, I think it's super impressive. Kudos to you and your entire family for, you know, um, it, it's not, it, it goes far beyond like, you know, I don't know, doing what your parents want you to do or, or doing something that, you know, your mom can go to the community center or, or church or whatever and be like, yo, my daughter, you know, like, <laughs> Well, I she mean, still it, did it, that. It's certainly sure, more than check the box, right? Like, because um, it was Harvard and engineering, right? It was like extra cool, but you found your own way. Oh. And then, you know, so I, this is, I, I think, a very important life lesson for a lot of young folks who feel like they have to choose one or the other. And that, and then because the world is so polarizing right now that we forget that we can have coexisting thoughts that we can do two things, uh, maybe concurrently as you did, or, you know, start one way like corporate life or academics and then pivot or try the creative thing, you know, scratch the itch, do take all the risk when you're young and then later decide like, yo, I did my thing. And, you know, so, you know, for, for you to pursue academics at the highest level, do it in your own way, but also find a home and a community and activities through which you could still 
build on your craft, I think it is really inspiring to people out there that you don't have to give up on your creative dreams or you don't have to be at odds with your parents and, you know, have this resentment towards them for the rest of your life just because they're quote unquote pushing you towards a certain way. I mean, look, another ex extreme example of somebody who went down that path and pivoted in, I guess, back into full-time comedy and acting is Ken Jeong. Like, Dude went through like medical school, like yeah, yeah. actually was a to doctor the, and he's the, like, oh shit, never max. mind. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's crazy. Um, mm -hmm. But it's, you know. Sure. And he, I mean, what's cool is he did, you know, say he made the, he also made the show about his life as a doctor, obviously amplified for comedy. But I, I do like echoing what you're saying. I, a couple of things, I guess, just like, I want to make clear that like, I know it's such a privilege too to be like, oh, and then I just decided to get my degree and then oops, I didn't use it. You know, uh, I think I definitely know that I had a, a safe landing coming back to LA, you know, which is something nobody has. Right. And so that was so lucky for me. So I felt like I could take a chance on this. And I, I do hear that from a lot of entertainment people. It's like, you have a lot of, um, you, it's just like, it is one of those industries where you kind of have this divide that I hope is shrinking between people who kind of like know what's going on, like knowing that writers exist. Right. And like people who don't, and the only way you'll know is like, uh, if you knew somebody or whatever. So like, I, I totally, um, think that, you know, going right. full blown Ken Jong and like becoming a doctor is totally fine too, because you might want to do that. And then, yeah, sure. Later in life, pivot, make your ABC show. <laughs> um, and like all that all awesome life experience of being a doctor might turn into a hit show. Um, but you know, yeah, I, I, I mean, so much respect to him, but also totally, yeah, huge respect for people who are going, doing what they came to do. And then maybe they'll, that'll create the comfort or whatever they need to, to pivot. Yeah. I think it's a fine balance. Um, what we're talking about between, you know, death is imminent. So pursue your dreams <laughs> now, right? Yes. we love. But it. at the same time, you know, going to school, like, isn't the end of your, like, creative career, right? Like, there's ways that you can figure out how to do both. And as as we just talked about with, with Ken, like, or with anybody else, right? Like, you know, you don't ignore the degree or the association with your school because you're a comedian now, right? Like, that helps you. Those experiences, that network, that part of your life helps you to do what you do now in a unique and much more advantageous way than somebody who did not have those experiences. And, and so I, I think it's, you know, do, I, I guess the short answer for folks who are like, well, what are you, what are you saying? Like go to school or don't go to school, do, do, do whatever <laughs> you me. feel is right in your heart and makes sense for you. Right. Like, uh, like Sierra mentioned, like pursuing higher education is a privilege, right? We're, we're going through a, a very challenging time in the world right now where schools, um, your school and, and my school too, like charging astronomical fees for what it is, you know, in essence, a, a Zoom class, like. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're like still same price. Right, like, don't worry about let, it. Let's, you know. Don't think too hard don't, about don't it. Don't look at that, huh. you know, endowment <laughs> over there. We can't touch that or we're going to tell you that you can't touch oh, it. Oh God. I know. Um, what the hell? Mm -hmm. Which is a completely different topic we could probably talk for hours on. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, Shall we? But, you know, we're, we're going, you know, I, I, if you're a college student listening right now, if you're a young person, just trying to figure out life, you know, um, one, this will pass Two, um, <laughs> you know, make the best. There's, there's going to be 
no wrong decision. There's going to be no perfect decision. Um, and here's the fun thing about life, like for, for all the science nerds, like there's no double blind study in life to see what decision would have been better. There's nothing like that. You pick one and you live your life and excellent. you, uh-huh. you know, people always say like, oh, you know, uh, do you regret going to grad school or do you regret whatever? I was like, I have no idea because I don't know how life would have been right, right. had I not gone. Like I've done it, <laughs> right? Like maybe somebody will ask you, Sierra, like, what if you just did comedy instead of going to college? Shit, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. What I, I yeah, who knows what crazy, you know, butterfly sure. effect and, and, and maybe like, you know, I, I think it's interesting because I, I look at, you know, another very famous Harvard comedian is Conan O'Brien. Like he went and gave the graduation speech. That's dope, right? Like, but he only did that because he went there, right? And he understands and like, it was very, very cool to do that. And now people are like, dude, you can't like lead the show with this great, you know, stereotype breaking Asian American woman comic and then just slide in the fact that she studied computer science at Harvard, um, which is super stereotype <laughs> confirming. Sorry, guys. Um, but you know, here to tell you that you can do both. It's, you can it's do both, both ways. Yeah, you can do both. You can confirm and break and break the confirmed. I, and, do, do whatever yeah, you want. As, you flip know, it all upside down. Do, do whatever you want. Life <laughs> is short. Just don't harm, harm other people. That's all. Um, yeah, so that's a good So through, through your experiences at Harvard doing comedy stuff, both you know, with on, on the campus and externally, is that something you decided then during school that you wanted to pursue actively full-time once you left? Or that's still the idea of doing something with a computer science degree balance it? And where were your parents throughout this, if at all, in your ear about what you should do with their, I don't, I don't know, for lack of a better term, mm. their investment? Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> the the biggest investment. Um, yeah, no, I I definitely feel like I... Kind of at the time, so I was studying and then, you know, summers I would work in tech, but like I wasn't doing, you know, I would come back to LA. So it's not like I was in, you know, San Francisco, hub of the world. Like I was still on the outskirts. So I kind of knew I wanted to, you know, and I guess that's, that's a very clear trade-off, right? It's like, okay, well, if you want to be near where comedy is happening, then you're probably not going to have as big of a tech job. And then, and, you know, I was willing to make that sacrifice. I, I, I already knew, I think at that time that I was like, okay, I'm okay doing, uh, this is good enough for me. And I don't feel like I'm a total failure for, you know, not pursuing one thing all the way. I'm okay doing both. And I kind of like that. Um, and yeah. And so then I think by the time, yeah, I was, I was figuring out stuff. I think for one, you know, I was surrounded by a lot of friends probably because of the lampoon and people who were interested in doing comedy. And I had a few friends who were older than me who had graduated and then became comedy writers or, you know, got an assistant job or something like that. So there was a little bit of a good like examples of like, okay, that's something that could happen again. You know, you don't really know what's happening. There's a lot of people who have parents who work in the business or something where you're like, well, I probably don't have the same connections as they, as, uh, you know, Mr. Paramount, but, uh, I, you know, hopefully somebody will take pity on me. So, so yeah. So I think I, I, again, had a, some good insight and examples that made me feel like I could take the plunge a little bit more, um, which is kind of what you need. And like, you also, you know, again, like I also moved back home after graduation. So that's a whole different, but you know, that, that means I don't <laughs> really have to pay rent for a while if I don't need to, you know, that's horrific. Right. So already people are like, get this girl out of here. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely a whole different situation. So I think I felt like I could 
take that chance because I had a huge, it wasn't really a chance, you know, I had a huge safety net. So that's, that's where I'm coming from there. Um, but as far as just like comedy and stuff and knowing that I wanted to pursue it out of passion or whatever, I think a lot of it was like, yeah, I started stand up comedy because I wanted to do stand up comedy, but the more that I was involved and the more Asian American comedians I met, which actually turned out to probably be the biggest influencers and, and, you know, people might say, oh, you know, who's your mentor, this and that, right? Like, I think I was lucky enough to have the Asian American comedian community, which I know doesn't, which is like, yeah. oh, you know, that's, it's actually quite a community, I would say, especially in Los Angeles. I don't know how it is in other cities, but um, yeah. And so I felt like, you know, I found people and who also were very passionate about this and also passionate about representation in comedy specifically and excited about you know, all of it. So I think that was really helpful just to yeah. see like, oh yeah, we're like also working towards something and I can feel like I'm a part of something bigger than myself, which was important. And, um, you know, I was lucky enough to get a couple like breaks essentially, quote unquote, like small breaks, but in college while I still was a student and I think it's not a coincidence. Like I think, you know, I did, um, I was still performing at the Laugh Factory. So then sometimes that, you know, people would see that video that went viral and then they would be like, oh, you know, that's how I got my audition for Last Comic Standing and that's how I got on there. And I think they kind of were like, ooh, we like the idea that she's also a Harvard computer science major. Let's like put a spotlight on that. So I think, you know, I got a lot of extra um, stuff from kind of being from this unique background and being a comedian. And then, you know, I think that gave me a little bit more wind in my sails to be like, okay, maybe there is an audience for this. And I made an, enough, I met enough people through that or other comedians or, you know, that's how I got representation. I'm sure it played a, played a role later on when I graduated. So it was like, you know, it was, it helped in the sense of making me feel like I had, yeah, had legitimacy, even though it's just a few credits, but it goes a long way in comedy. Cause like, you kind of have to be like, oh, I've been on this show in order to get on an even sillier show, like just in a LA bar. They were like, well, have you been on, you know, Jimmy Fallon to come on this <laughs> silly bar show? And you're like, no, you know, I don't, you know, it's just like that, those sort of politics and stand-up comedy exist. And so I think they, uh, yeah, it actually did help. Um, so and, and yeah, that was sort of my I'm thought process around. Call that you time. out because you said, <laughs> "Oh, you know, I got a few small breaks here and there." You were on freaking Last Comic Standing, national TV stuff. That's awesome. <laughs> sure, I mean, you know, yeah, so so fun. Like I, I grew up. I mean, I kind of grew up watching yes, the show. I feel like I saw the cool. first season where I think that fan because he was one won. of us, right? Know. Like, uh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, that was like a big. Actually, yeah, I should have mentioned him at the beginning. Yeah, that was like. That was yeah. a, probably a major thing. You know how sometimes you realize later, you're like, oh, yeah, that was a big deal in my childhood. But I, like, didn't really think mm -hmm. of that when I talk about it. Yeah, that was a huge deal because yeah. he, like, won the whole thing. And I think, you know, you're following all these people and you find them all super funny. And the fact that he was um, Asian American was like, wow, that's that's so rare. And, like, everybody liked him. So cool. You know. What was that like being perhaps much younger than most Um younger than most earlier in your comedy career because I've seen maybe not every season but enough to know that a lot of the last comic standing folks have been trying comedy for a long time and this is one of many potential breaks that they're searching for um you're also unconventional from a background perspective um and, and as you mentioned a five foot one Asian American woman you know competing against um, I don't know, different types of a diverse group of people. 
Um, what was that experience like? And, and how did, you know, was there any part of your Japanese and Chinese American identity that was either, um, you know, helpful or, or something that you learned about yourself during that, the TV process? Interesting. Okay. So one, one thing that I would mention <laughs> is uh, from that, I learned you always got to always kind of always do your own makeup for <laughs> TV. <laughs> I don't know what I end up looking at, but I would say, I would say I was like, ah, okay. Yeah. Kind of, kind of, she kind of made me look gray. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I know there's like a lot of makeup politics of like, you know, of course, makeup artists tend to be white and then they tend to not know how to do makeup on that's other a races. Thing. So, that, that's a anyway, real thing. So that's one because, silly thing, but that's, yeah, it pertains I, to being Not from Asian. a yeah. TV perspective, but you know, my wife grew up in a part of the country. There's not a lot of Korean. She grew up in Oregon. And so we, we got married here in LA and you know, we, she mentioned and her, her, her and her friends talk about wedding makeup folks that are Asian do wedding makeup very oh, differently. Yes in both intensity, color, and style than non-Asian folks. Because, yo, if the canvas is different, you can't paint the same way, right? So, but if you, you know, exactly. if, if you live in an area where there's no, you know, there's not a lot of Asian American makeup folks or hair folks, they're just going to, you know, copy and paste or, you know, do what they do best. Maybe not on very many Asian American clients, but so right, I, right. I, I, you know, I don't do makeup, you know, I don't know, nobody's seeing our faces and what are you guys talking about? Like, Waving at our faces, like, <laughs> uh, but it's, it's true, right, you so know, it's, it's, uh -huh. but that cultural sensitivity or that awareness is something and somewhere we hopefully get to. And, and so that, you know, TV is made for everybody, right? right? Like America is diverse. And that comes with having more of us, yes. not just on camera, but not only behind the camera, but in the writing rooms, in the director's chairs, in the producer's chairs, um, particularly in, in perhaps the the line producer's chair. So they'll be like, we need to budget extra stuff for things that, for everybody. Um, but anyway, Very, yeah. go, go back to the show. I got really excited about makeup. <laughs> oh no. I mean, all those things. I second it all. You know, I think sometimes <laughs> they're trying to paint their face on your face and you're like, I don't think this works. Um, but that's something I learned. It's all good. Um, no, also, I guess, yeah, from that experience, I mean, yeah, like you said, a lot of, a lot of people were older and definitely more seasoned. So it's a little, it's a little like, I, I think that was just like a lot of my earlier stand-up life was, and that's going to be any career, right? It's like, as you get older and more seasoned, you're going to meet the newbies and then you're going to deal with that however that is, right? Like I've met comedians who are like, oh man, that's so cool. You're young. Like, I, you know, that's awesome. Go for it. And then some people who are more like, okay, who's this girl yeah. thinks she is, you know? So there's definitely... Um, that I think specifically in that scenario, like everyone was very supportive. I met a lot of people who I still, you know, run into or keep in contact to this day who I like, everybody's going at different speeds in their career. So some people who are like <laughs> special people, I'm like, all right, bye. Um, and then, you know, some people who are still, I don't know, doing what they do best, which is oftentimes staying in their town where they like can headline and like just crush all the time, you know? So I think it's, it is, it was a really, um, overall fine. And it was very quick. Like it was only like, I don't know, I was there for a couple of days. I think I stayed a little longer because there was like, Ooh, maybe you'll move on. Maybe you won't just hang, <laughs> hang out here in the hotel for a little bit. So I was like, okay, great. So I just like ran around and, you know, met more people and it was awesome. Um, uh, yeah. And, and, mm. uh, a lot of good Asian American comics on that, uh, KT Tatara, Helen Hong, um, 
And I think, I think Shang Wang was there too. Yeah, yeah. But I think I met him briefly. So it was like, you know, it was like meeting all the people who you look up to and it was cool. You mentioned it briefly and you just mentioned some names now that um, may be familiar to some of our listeners. You mentioned this community of Asian American comics here in Los Angeles. Um, how, how did you get involved? Is there a jumping in process? Do you have to prove yourself? Do, do the Netflix people right. not so talk to you? It's a long hazing process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how is that? Do they ISIS out? No, yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's a long hazing process to <laughs> say. As I mentioned, you got to get completely, uh, you know, kidnapped in the night. No, it's, um, I don't know. How did I, I feel like I, well, I got lucky because, you know, also entering when I did, um, which was, you know, probably by the time I was starting to, maybe like 2012, I was a little bit mm. more, you know, or no, 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 probably later than that, 2014, I was probably like a little bit more integrated into the comedy community. So by that time, there have been a lot of Asian American comics who are not the only ones and who have like built up this sort of like, we're all in this together guys attitude, which like, of course didn't exist short, shortly right. before probably, but also for a while. Um, so, I mean, you know, the Laugh Factory did a really great job, I think of bringing in a lot of Asian American comics and like a lot of that was PK, the comedian. Um, he like had an Asian night that I think he ran for a really long time, which brought in a ton of Asian American audience members too, which he would always joke like the owner would be like so happy because everybody would be like drinking so much and like buying bottles and be like, wow, making That's such a profit. Guilt, guilty. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> did that good. Um, yeah, you know, so clearly, uh, an established market for Asian American night at the laugh factory. Um, yeah. So PK, uh, Walter Hong, who we mentioned is a mutual friend. He's great. Um, yeah. So I think it was kind of like a lot of a lot started at the Laugh Factory, and there are also some producers. I guess would be called producers, yeah, producers at the Laugh Factory who were also Asian American. So I think that was kind of nice. It was like I'm sure they were like, oh, you know, hey, you should watch these people. You know, they're kind of helping us out. But also, um, yeah, just cool to see again people behind the scenes that are just as important, right? Um, but we don't always yeah. know what they do, right? Um, but yeah, so I think that was a big help. Um, and more recently, it's been I would say like the surge of of just general pride in Asian American media and representation. So there's a lot of shows that are specifically like, this is the Asian American show, um, Asian AF at UCB will be a variety show or um, Kiki Young does Crazy Woke Asians, which is like um, a bunch of Asian American comedians um, and also not just comedians. And so I think it's, yeah, that surge has kind of, I've seen more recently where it's like, yeah, yeah. plays on the Crazy Rich Asians name or like other types of shows that are specifically Asian American um, and so that's like, yeah, I think that's kind of like the next wave or whatever. So pre-COVID, we were, and then it was we, the the Asians were on and, <laughs> and were, um, you know, on, on a very good run of representation on stages, large and small, um, <laughs> you know, sure. movies and music and comedy. Um, how does, how is that? impacted your confidence and your, um, your, your storytelling presence? Did it change? Were you, did you find yourself telling more jokes or sharing stories that maybe you felt a little bit hesitant about prior to this coming out party of us being super loud and awesome? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think so. I mean, a little bit of like, so, you know, as a, as a writer too, you're like constantly thinking about, ooh, what, uh, and especially a stand-up comedian writer, whatever, right? 
constantly thinking of like, oh, what's your story that you want to turn into a TV show or whatever? And like, of course, most of that stuff from what I hear, and I feel like because I came from stand-up, sorry, I'm a little all over the place. Because I came from stand-up, I think I was always okay just talking about me and like weird upbringing or like not weird, you know, just like okay with that um, in a way that I'm thankful for now because of course now everything is more about identity that I think maybe it wasn't 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And so um, that sort of format of like talking about yourself and knowing that you have a unique point of view is relatively new. So I could see that being like a hard, you know, kind of a learning curve of like, oh, weird. Now you want to hear about my story? But I don't know. I was always like spewing that on stage. So I'm like, yeah, I mean, I was just waiting for you guys to be ready to hear my story. Um, but I think overall, um, I think I noticed that I've just been feeling lucky about the fact that like a lot of other Asian Americans are excited to tell their stories. So it's like either watching more stuff or like working with other comedians to write their story. You know, um, I was doing a thing with Joe Wong for a while, who's a hilarious comedian who I feel like, you know, he's been around through all sorts of different waves of like, what's, you know, what's the trendy comedy topic now? And yeah, again, 10 years ago, I might've been like, oh, I'm just like somebody, <laughs> uh, oh, I did the Asian, not Asian podcast mm. with uh, Fumi Abe and Mike Wynn. And they had a hilarious uh concept that like, you know, 10 years ago or so, maybe around the time that I started, comedy was often like kind of beta white guys was like the prime. So they were really, you know, it was really about like, oh, I can't get a girl or like, I don't know, that's maybe like where you're coming from. And it's like relatable. And sure, like anybody can do that. Like even, you know, any type of comedian can kind of channel that energy a little bit. But, you know, there is, it is important to note that there are genres and, and times for different comedy styles to to flourish. And I think now is, it's good to come from your unique perspective and not hide that. But I think there was a time when it was like, oh, I'm not going to talk about how, like, I'm Asian American. I'm going to talk about how, like, isn't it crazy when, you know, <laughs> sweaters look like this? You know, it's like, it's so strange how things have changed. But, um, but yeah, I, I think talking about your own identity and like telling your story and things like that. I feel lucky that I, yeah, yeah that, that I've, that's basically what I want to do. And I, I know it's, it's definitely sounds narcissistic, but I think it also comes also in on top of being narcissistic. It comes from a place of like, I never wanted to plagiarize or accidentally say somebody else's joke. So I mm. wanted to just talk about like what happened to me. So I could also not like speak, excuse me, speak for other people. I think we're always going to be accused of speaking for other people. But I think it's, it is important right. that like, you know, if you're specific about yourself, like people can relate and, um, sure. it doesn't necessarily mean that you're saying everybody has this experience, but, um, but yeah, I think that, that method of, of storytelling and, and getting the comedy out of your own life is like something that I've always wanted to do. And, I'm glad it's it's <laughs> seems to be um, a thing people. Want I don't to know hear. if you count your uh, debut at Flappers as your professional debut, but you've been telling jokes on stages for ten years now, which makes makes you quite the veteran. This is true, yeah. And and so now you know, uh, <laughs> old and young, all at once. How how have you seen <laughs> the change within the Asian American comedian community of more women on stages? Have have you seen an increase? Um, what was it like then, and and where do you what are you excited for things to come um, in terms of more people standing on stages or at least telling jokes on on Zoom meetings for now? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean the the final stage. Uh, I think it's <laughs> yeah. I think it's great. I see you know seeing it a lot more, and I think so much of that is. I don't know if it's like me finding pockets of like, oh, finally we have a spot to perform that feels a little bit more comfortable. But I think overall it's more of just like generally there are more female comedians and creating spaces mm -hmm. for each other to feel safe to tell a joke and be hilarious and and just, you know, it, it's a, it is a weird space for um, that I've experienced for women because it's just so male dominated more so than other things in entertainment and um, that's already pretty male dominated. And, you know, there's been kind of a reckoning recently that was sort of like, could be labeled as like the me too movement <laughs> in comedy that, you know, is examining like, okay, so this is a workplace that happens at nighttime and then there's drinking and there's no HR. And there's also like, you know, this championing of sort of the like, uh, pro yeah, I don't know, like the the rock star kind mm -hmm. of comedian, I think. So that that never really bodes well for um all genders. Uh so I think, yeah, I think it's it has been really cool to like find other comedians who have kind of gone through similar things of, yeah, feeling a little bit like it's not the best workplace, but also not wanting that to detract from what you're doing. And and there's a lot of like factors I think that are that have kind of, um, you know, it's an industry that's kind of like yeah. grown organically through certain needs of like touring or, um, you know, it's freelancers, no unions. It's all like free for all. So if you're touring, that's going to have different like safety precautions than if you're right. um, not. And touring is actually a really big part of stand up. And yeah. And so, you know, I, I think, I think it's um, like everything, the fact that we're talking about it yeah. is like, the best. Um, and there's been so many comedians, uh, or women that I, that I've, that I've either hired me or I've like met them and they're like all about, you know, trying to make it a better workplace and better place for women or people of color or women of color, all, all the folks, um, yeah, than it was when they were coming up. So that's a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's really cool. Um, one, one of the very first uh, stand-up comic memories that I have was of, of Margaret Cho, which, you know, she's like super OG okay. and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I didn't know that the jokes she was telling at the time were like, I did very different from the way I hear these and process these jokes now. Cause you're a kid and you're <laughs> like, Hey, there's a great <laughs> woman on stage telling jokes and my parents know who she is. Right, That's right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think as a kid, like we saw her, we saw her in Koreatown and we're like, Oh, that's wow, so cool. Yeah. Right. Like, and like, that's, you know, that's literally, now that I think of it, like one of my very first like celebrity sightings, it was like super cool. And, and now to bookend that now, you know, as, as a timestamp on 2020, like, you know, Ali Wong is kicking ass and not just over Asian American fans, like globally, Huge, she's a household yeah. name and, you know, like two big, big deals. And, you know, uh, she, she talks about, you know, mar marrying a, a dude. Uh, with Harvard oh. MBA and now like, you know, he don't yeah, have to work. Geez. That's pretty cool because yeah, she's been, she's been good. Um, <laughs> but it is, I think, so cool uh, to see our sisters out there kick it ass because, you know, I have a, I have a one-year-old daughter and I wanted to grow up like seeing you guys and thinking that's not only possible, that it's probable that if she wants to, like, there's going to be people and I can't imagine, you know, the community 
the, the growth of the community, not just in size, but also in relationships and in, and in support that in 15, 20 years, when our kids grow up, it's like, okay, like you literally can do anything and there's going to be dozens of people to support you that you'll never have to feel alone. And, you know, you'll never really have to feel like, you know, you're in this weird place of just feeling alone and that you have to figure out everything on your own for the first time. And, and, and that's sort of, you know, the whole mission of why we do this podcast is not to, you know, we, we ask everybody the same fundamental questions, right? Like, tell me your origin story. What did you want to do? What did you think you could do? What did you first do? And then what do you do now? Like, it's <laughs> not a very scientific formula, um, but through it, what we hope to get through to many people listening to our, our voices is like, we've all been through it, right? And whether we came here by choice or not, and who came here and what we did, like, we, we hope that at once, at one point, every story hits a core or strikes a chord with somebody to say like, oh, I'm not the only person. And I think it's so awesome to see you just... I got to be honest, like, um, you didn't tell me you were like filling out the form to come on the show. I started, and I was like, oh, that's so, I was so excited. Oh, dude, I, I, I've yeah, seen no. you perform and I was like, oh my God, this oh. is cool. Right. Like, because it's, it's, I don't know any, any, I get excited when I host people that are stereotype breaking. Right. And I hope we get to a point where there are no stereotypes to break. Right. But until then we're going to feature people that you know, and this is not a knock on traditional employment academic people like you do you. And if you're happy doing it and, you know, good. But it is cool because so many people still and so many young folks that I talk to and, and mentors still still think that their career choices sit on this finite menu that their parents present to them and say, you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer or every everything's a hobby. And for every person that's like you that has done both, but also taken the creative thing and then actually made it successful. And then to say like, this is my chosen path. I hope it gives hope and inspiration to one of those young folks to say like, me too. And because you've done it and then you stand on the shoulders of giants, you weren't the first and nor will you be the last. And so we're always sort of, you know, trying to make the opening or, or the pathway slightly wider. Let, let's talk about 2020. It's been, um, I don't know, uh, for lack of a appropriate word, it's been like a really shitty year professionally <laughs> for, for most yeah. people and <laughs> for, for those in your industry, both the stand-up comedy industry and the entertainment industry in general, as, as, as production has, has come to a halt here in, in Hollywood. And then moreover, on, on a personal note, it's been a really awful year for Asian Americans to have to live in fear of just our own safety for what we look like and, and who we were born as because of the virus and, you know, the, the, the hateful rhetoric that comes from people who really shouldn't be saying that. What have you realized through all that's going on about sort of the opportunity that you have on the stages that you speak on, the podcast that you produce and through indirectly through the thing, the, the things, the shows that you write, um, how has this year impacted your perspective on the world? Yeah, I mean, whew, big, big, uh, big stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely been, you know, so many phases of uh, of different hor horrific things. Um, I know so 
one of the main things that I think a lot of comedians like myself are hoping is that you're not just telling jokes that you're getting through to people. And like, in many ways, the humor is like the, I don't know, the honey that makes the medicine, whatever the hell that is. It, you know, it's, it's a tool. It's not necessarily <laughs> the end goal. And, um, I know that's like a huge, I don't know, I guess like not necessarily that I've ever been able to get there yet, but I know that like a huge part of what I was thinking about, even when thinking now talking about going into comedy or creative career was sort of like, you know, if you're really in the business of like changing minds, say it's not a bad thing to go into because I know what I have felt most, um, yeah, most, I, I, I have felt most inspired by like sometimes comedians or by entertainment and that's just me. And I, I respond to that. So therefore here I am trying to do that uh, as well. And the other thing that's always been really, I think a big driver of me wanting to do comedy is that I feel like, you know, voice is really important and like, you know, being able to kind of like say what you mean and then also like say it in a way that hopefully the other person is getting it. Like, that's really, that would be tough to lose, I think, for me. So I know I want that somehow. And so what does that mean? I mean, I don't know necessarily, like, sure, it could mean, like, putting out, you know, I'll, I'll put out my podcast, and I did one where it's, like, it's just me talking, and then, like, whatever people might respond or whatever, you know. And, and there's definitely a lot of, uh, you know, I, I'm familiar with the uh, the unfriendly DM and the comment, and I'm not great. I haven't developed the thick skin yet, but I think that, you know, literally it's so, um, it's like, if I don't have that skin, I don't know who does because it's like, it's kind of my job to like get mean comments. I don't know. I just, I feel like, like, you know, especially I think for any woman, woman online, it's like, you're, you're just, um, slammed. So I think I'm just kind of working on developing that thick skin and that's kind of a just constant goal because that is probably the main barrier to me putting out stuff that I want to, to actually say something. And I think that, um, you know, I could definitely do more of a job of that. And I think every day you find out, oh yeah, there's something to be said today because literally everything is falling apart. It feels right. Um, on just like the general, you know, how media works in that way. And as a writer too, like I'm currently writing for an animated show for Disney junior. Um, that's like, you know, it hasn't come out yet, but there, I don't know. I, I've really found a lot of solace in like writing for children's television. I think that like mm. there's, we do talk in the room a lot about like, well, hopefully if this generation isn't so good, the next one could be, you know, <laughs> and of course that might be waiting too long, but I think, you know, it's, it's fun to think of things of like, wow, if I was a kid and I saw this, I think that that would really be meaning a lot, whether that's representation or, you know, seeing like a story be told about like, hey, it's okay to like, you know, be, uh, reach across to somebody who you disagree with and like, it's going to be, you know, a learning experience or whatever these sort of lessons that we learn as kids that kind of dissipate as we get older. Um, so I don't know, that makes me feel like I'm doing something probably it's not, but you know, and, um, yeah. And I think just overall, it's like, it's been just like, yeah, really, really fascinating, um, to understand that we have so much more work to do even than I thought before. And even 
when I did think before, like it's, it's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a lot. So I, I know that I'm not, um, in nearly as bad of a position as I could be in the, in the, in, the, uh, in this pandemic, but I know that like, you know, we're all kind of at least becoming more aware in our downtime of like the systems that need to be changed. I think you bring up a, such an interesting and important point. We, we talked about earlier how just fundamentally important it is for us to be in front of the camera, behind the camera, um, in all aspects of production of, of something. But I think being in the writer's room is uh, either the most underrated or the most important thing because the, the strategy sort of sets the tone. Um, you mentioned, you know, jokingly, maybe if not just Generation Next, um, which might be true. But I also think about the <laughs> subconscious and unconscious influences that you and I and, and even people, people older than us grew up with because the things that we consumed, especially as children, were written by people that have no idea what our experiences were like, were written by people who either didn't care for our perspective or didn't care about inclusivity or actively worked against it. Um, you know, there's a lot of calling out, if you will, of, you know, inappropriate or things that probably uh, shouldn't have, wouldn't have been produced, let's say. But in children's stuff, there's still a lot of caricatures. There's a lot of stereotypes. There's a lot of just bad things where you're just like, who wrote this? And who okayed this? <laughs> and then now with, with people right, like right. you, I, I hope we're getting to that point where like we stop and then we, you know, we at least there's a check, right? Like that you being in the room might be either deterring somebody from writing that potentially racist joke or you'll say, yo, what the F, <laughs> right? Like that's not cool. And if enough of those moments happen, hopefully we get to a point where people, you know, uh, I don't know, do, do comedy writers or children's writers go through diversity and sensitivity training? If they not, they should, right? Like, but, but I think that's, mm -hmm. you know, who writes books that our kids consume, right? Like, I am so excited. Like, I, I try to buy, if there's like a new Asian American children's book anywhere in the universe, I'm like, ooh, I'm just going to buy it, right? Like, because... Yeah, yeah, because I want my be kids to grow up. You know, I, I saw this chart. Um, it's, it's from a group called We yeah. Need Diverse Books. And it's like things featured in children's books, right? <laughs> like white kids, super high, animals, and then Asians, oh, black yes, and brown yes. kids, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Ah, like, uh, yes, animals, the secondary like race. Kids, yeah. Um, I, I don't know, like Asian kids, <laughs> I don't know, until very recently, like... You know, saw sure. more talking yes. bears and tigers than they did kids that look like themselves and in their developing brain. And, and, you know, what is that? What, what much, how much more hope and positivity can we put into the universe if we have them grow up reading and seeing things that reflect not just the way we look, but how other people look, right? Like, um, you know, unfortunately, we got the bad news over the weekend that Chadwick Boseman passed away. But 
like even as an Asian American dude, I love watching Black Panther because like, shit, like this is cool. Because I that that empowered me to think that we can do too, right? And and so we we need to put totally. all these important things in front of kids at the earliest age, and perhaps it needs to start in. Obviously, it needs to start in in the executive boardroom where they greenlight these things. But the the second best thing is, you know, in the writers' room, like what things get also just as importantly, what things get included, but what things get left out, and and to make sure that everybody feels um, very included. And I, and I think that is um, so exciting. And and you know, you're in this world where. You're in traditional media from a writer's perspective, but you're also in new media in producing your own podcast and, and, and sharing your jokes and your own story on your on our own platforms as, as I am here on my, on my show. And, and there's no right or wrong way. I think we need to attack it from all angles. And I think what's also really critically important to our audience and yours too is that sort of the next, a different way to help approach that problem is to get to the parents of these young children and saying, what are you putting in front of your kids? Right? Like just because it's popular does not, that mean that it's good, you know? Um, and especially now when every parent's like, F it, iPad, make sure it's fully charged. Right. Um, right, right. it's challenging. Raised by TV, um, do it. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I, but, I'm sure that's sufficient for now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I essentially, it's it's all super. Saying, just to, uh, yeah, just to as as, as challenging as it is, I I hope it's these little things that we mm-hmm. come away from twenty twenty that we don't forget that these lessons that we don't forget going coming out of this, um, that we've we uh, you know find um, our voice and really appreciate what it means to speak our own voice, to have pride, healthy pride in the community, and then to not only stick with each other, but to stand up for other people. Because it's, I don't know, been a very, very challenging year. Um, You know. uh, Oh, if I could. Yeah. if I, I just thought of something really quickly about all this stuff that I think I've thought about a little bit and then kind of forgot about. (laughs) But no, I mean, I think it's, it's important is the fact that like, you know, with this writer room, writer's room stuff, we are very, I think in my particular situation, pretty lucky, like Disney's been great about, you know, diversity training. They have, they have like a diversity up the ladder. So I think there's at least a lot of consciousness surrounding it. Granted, they're also, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a company with a reputation. So they do have to like be sensitive and that's part of their business plan as well as their moral plan. Um, but also, I think what's been really a fun change about 2020, okay, maybe, you know, dare I say a silver lining? No. Um, is that I think, you know, there's a lot of kind of what we're talking about now within a lot of Asian American community and then also just general is like speaking up um, because there's so many things that it's like, okay, make yourself uncomfortable. Like that is sort of a lot of the tone of like, you know, um, Black Lives Matter, like uh, maybe this wouldn't happen in this scenario if like somebody stepped in, you know, and that's an uncomfortable thing to do or whatever, right? Um, and that could be in the workplace, that could be in, you know, with a stranger on the street, who knows? 
And I think that's been, you know, not something that I've been trained to do. Um, but for sure, like, especially being in, in, um, in an industry that's kind of hierarchical. So when you're hired as a writer, you're definitely at the bottom of like the writer's team, you know, staff writer, and then it happens. And then you have like other rankings and then there's a head writer or whatever. Right. Um, that I think now, you know, generally we're hearing more about people speaking up or at least, you know, questioning, and that doesn't always win you the points or, um, help you advance in your career in the way that I think a lot of us have been taught, right? Mm. But it does sometimes mean that you are doing what you came here to do. And I think that's what I'm learning. And I think, you know, especially going to a competitive college where I think a lot of people are also trained in this mindset of like, Mm. you know, I'll get the money and then I'll like donate it to charity or whatever. (laughs) Um, It's like, you know, I think learning about the fact that it's like, okay, what this has really taught me and hopefully a lot of other people too is like, Sometimes you just got to like, yeah, speak up even at your own cost and like, have I done this yet? I haven't needed to. So like, this is me like kind of spewing at the mouth, but, um, you know, I think if there's a scenario and I, you know, in a future job where that's not as open-minded as the one I'm in right now, I I think I have a little bit more precedent of people (laughs) like saying like, yeah, you know, you, you can speak up, look at the people who've done so. And like, they, I don't know, that's what they're unfortunately uh supposed to do but yeah it's it's definitely important i was given this word of advice um it's it's been about a year since i've had a corporate boss and i've been speaking into a microphone and 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 sharing whatever the hell it comes to mind (laughs) and you know um and i think it's good traditional advice but what she shared with me was you know even though you have this you know unchecked autonomy and authenticity to share what's on your mind, you might want to think about how a potential future employer might interpret what you're saying and still be careful of what you say. And I said, hell no. Well, I, in my mind, I was like, <laughs> who is this? And in my mind, yeah, I was yeah. like, F that. That's what they want us <laughs> to do. Right. Because I, I think it's, um, look, my, my bold entitled, ass is going to say like, well, F you, then I don't want to work with you if you're not going to hire me because I talked to fellow Asian Americans about, you know, this effed up system that we're still living in, right? Like I would, life's too short um, to, to care about not even a real employer, but this fake potential employer that might or might not hire you decades from now because of you know, truth that I spoke or a conversation that I had with a friend about our authentic stories. And I think that's what I would hope to, um, you know, learn from people like you is that throughout your entire story, Sierra, I think it's been authenticity. You didn't shy away from your desire to, uh, you know, make your family proud and, and do the things you did. But you took care of your shit. You went to school, you got your degree, you, you know, learned and honed your craft while there, uh, you know, shined at the, at the biggest level on freaking national TV. And, and, and now, you know, even at such an early relative part of your comedy career, you are now influencing through your writing and through your work, the next generation of our community. 
uh, to believe that they can be whoever the hell they want to be. And, you know, um, and every time you go on a stage, whether you recognize it in the moment or maybe it'll all hit you when you're much older is there's somebody in the audience. And when we talk about inspiring people, it's not always people younger than us, right? It's oftentimes people older than you for whom it might be one of the very few first times that they see somebody that looks like us on a stage because we grew up at a time when that wasn't so commonplace. And so it gives, I'm not saying I'm old, but I am older. It gives some of us people the holy crap, like, you know, yes, there's a bit of sadness about what could have been had we had those inspiration moments in our earlier lives, but it makes us so hopeful that we can start to craft the rest of our future from now. And especially for our, our kids collectively as a community that we can build, you know, just a future that they'd be, we'd be happy for them to live in. And so, and, and, and you did that for me. I was at the Laugh Factory show when you share the stage with Jimmy and PK and, and KT. Yeah. Um, oh. That was a very, well very done. fun show. That was a fun um, show. So, I mean, you know, I, I think <laughs> it's, it's impactful, you know, and it's, it's not a burden and it's not, maybe it's a burden, maybe it's a responsibility, but um, those of us who are crazy enough to speak into a microphone and expect people to listen, like our, our words have an impact and it is this great gift of responsibility that we have to shepherd um, or to nurture uh, this investment that people are making us, making in us, right? Like if you're listening to this, we're going on 80 minutes, like y'all have better things to do because you're not, you're not commuting to work. You're not on the treadmill at the gym. <laughs> Um, unless you're listening to us in 2022, you've taken an active part of your day away from something else that you could be doing to hear Sierra and me talk about our experiences and, and her, you know, uh, life and, and career journey. And so we recognize that. And when we take up your space um, of time, even through laughter or just storytelling, we understand that it, it's not something we take super lightly or lightly at all. And that you're entrusting us with that. So thank you to, to if, if you've listened this far, maybe some people turned us off earlier or had to, had to stop what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, they're like, I, I don't know how people listen to podcasts, you know, um, I mean, as, <laughs> as I'm sure you do too, but it's like, damn it. I can't wait for people to start driving again. My listenership is going to go through the roof once, as soon as people can start driving. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. It is a, Big routine. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. it's okay. You know, it's, people know. can still uh, drive around. Walk around your living room and, and listen to us or, really you know, say, <laughs> um, right. Sierra, Same I, this sensation. is so fun. Um, I am, uh, I cannot state how excited I am for your future. Um, I, I think about chapters and people's lives. You know, if you were to imagine the Sierra Catal autobiography, right? Like, and it's, I don't know, uh, 30 chapters. You're like on chapter six, right? Like, and you nice. got, no, shit. Don't, <laughs> okay, don't, so no, don't do the I math. Die around. Because you Harvard people doing the math when I close this question, right? <laughs> if I'm 20 something and it's chapter, oh, okay, man, I'm saying. Late. I know. You can so live, you can write the rest nature. of your book however the way you want, right? 
And and you of all people understand how one word can change the tone of an entire story, how one sentence, one act, or one lack of a word can shift an entire story and go in a completely different direction. And we all have that power within ourselves to decide something for ourselves today, to stop doing something, to tell somebody something that we've been feeling, and, and really to live a life that is that we can all be proud of, regardless of what other other people say or think. Um, you did mention earlier just sort of the, the online bulliness <laughs> that we have to deal with, um, particularly when it comes to racist assholes who, you know... Um, have like yeah, no yeah, fear that like saying dumb shit online is going to have any impact in their professional Right, they don't world. care about it's their like future boss. Screenshots. They don't, they don't even care about the present boss. <laughs> uh, right. But the, imagine the entitlement that they think that they don't have any repercussions from yeah, any know. of them. Mind blowing. Give me the confidence. Um, I, I, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn and just like the stupid shit that people are like outwardly saying oh, on wow, a professional yeah, yeah, yeah. network where Complete like. Work history yeah. listed. I've seen those assholes now go like, you know, X at confidential. They don't put their oh. current company name. They're getting, they're getting I smarter. Mean, yeah. But we're but gonna, geez, you know. Why are you even on LinkedIn then? But if like, you have, if you have to hide yourself uh, or yeah, just don't yeah, say stupid like, shit. Yeah. Like create, do it on <laughs> there, a different yeah, there's that choice. if you need to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but hey, thanks so much for coming on. Um, if we want to end the show that we, in, in the same way that we end all of our shows and it is in the form of a love letter to the Aries and American community from you uh, to share any words of celebration, support, or inspiration, perhaps to a younger version of Sierra somewhere in the world listening to this, or even to somebody who is going through their own creative struggles or on their own journey. So if you would, please help us finish out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. um, All right. Yeah. Hey, what's up? Uh... (laughs) Making it a little casual. Uh, no, I guess, you know, I, I want you to feel like there's value with what you bring to the world, no matter what other people say, you know, whether that's your family or maybe it's, yeah, you know, that friend or whoever might be trying to dictate what um, what is actually valuable. Like that's, that's going to be all from you. And like so many words, it's, it's sometimes... I feel like I would hear that kind of stuff a lot and I still would go to like, okay, well, what can be quantified or like, what can I, you know, sort of tell somebody to make them shut up when they ask me, you know, during the holidays, what I'm up to or whatever. But, you know, I think when you're ready, I think it'll make sense, which is hopefully that you can find the value within yourself and like, you know, go after what it means to you and that'll be impenetrable, hopefully. Um, and I'm still trying to learn that too. So, yes. Thanks again. As, as I was sharing earlier, I, I am so excited. I don't think you have any idea what your ceiling actually is in not only making your family proud, but also really shaping the entire next generation of Asian American youth and especially girls to dream and to believe what is possible and the impact that you're going to have because you're in, in a very short amount of time, you, you've made a lot of impact, especially on platforms where the influence is in perpetuity already. And so keep on doing what you're doing. I, I know 2020 has been 
challenging <laughs> to say the least. But yeah, I, I think you are an amazing positive uh, influence in the community. And uh, thank you for making the time to come in and share a little bit of uh, your world with us. Well, thank you so much, Jerry. This is such a great podcast. And I feel like this is what we need, you know, every day. You just need Jerry in your ears just telling you great things like he does. <laughs> so poetic, you know. <laughs> hey, th thank you so much. Keep, keep being funny. Keep changing lives. And uh, we'll see you on a stage hopefully sooner than later. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, really enjoy the conversation with Sierra. Um, I'm so excited for what's to come for her. Um, and, and just so glad that uh, she's in our lives and that we were able to hear her story. And so um, if you enjoy the story as much as I did, um, take a moment to please share this episode out with your friends, uh, screen capture it and share it on Instagram or Facebook, tag us wherever you can. And also uh, join our community here on Facebook at the Dear Asian Americans community or tag us, follow us everywhere you can at Dear Asian Americans. And shoot me a note if you want to jump on the show or share that with me. I'd be more than happy to uh, talk to you. Our email address is hello at the Eurasian Americans if you want to shoot us an email instead. Or you can write to me, hello at jerrywan.com if you want to send it to me directly instead. Thanks again for tuning in. Really glad you took the time to listen to us. I want to thank Sierra again so much for sharing her story with us. And until next time, wish you health safety, and happiness. Signing off for the Asian Americans here on episode 84. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and be well.